Proctor with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. Clubmesh will be taking place the 5th and 6th of November. The conference will run virtually across U.S. and European time zones so that people who have been unable to visit Codemess previously in the U.K. will finally have the ideal opportunity to enjoy the talks, workshops, networking, and idea sharing no matter where they are located. Day 1 will be taking place Thursday 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. GMT, and Day 2 will be taking place Friday 5 p.m. to midnight GMT. Visit CodeMesh.io for more information and to register. Lambda Days 2021 is approaching. It will be a virtual event spread over several days in February 2021. There will also be two co-located virtual events, Trends in Functional Programming and Trends in Functional Programming in Education. Visit www.lambdadays.org slash lambdadays2021 to keep up to date as more information is announced. If you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Russ Proctor, and this week with us we have Duncan McGregor. Duncan, welcome to the show. Would you mind introducing yourself to the audience for those who haven't encountered you? Thanks, it's nice to be here. My name is Duncan McGregor, and I am a uh, software engineer by trade, physics and math by training, and an avid open source contributor and developer for over two decades now. So I know you from the Erlang and Lisp-flavored Erlang community and various things with Lisp. We'll start out with your background, your software development by trade. How did you get into that? And we'll lead into how did you get to the functional programming side? Because some people come in straight there. Some people make a long and winding path. Let's set a little bit of background about that. For me, my background in programming actually goes back to childhood. And that wove its way throughout my entire career. So I'll just start there. I guess from 1981, my parents got a CPM machine, a K-Pro 2, to do some authoring of books and stuff. It came with a subset of the now classic BSD games. These had been written in BASIC, and the software was provided for free. And because it was all ASCII and text-based games, my parents couldn't see whether I was like doing something interesting and learning on the computer or if I was playing a game. So it was kind of a nice little outlet for me because I was never allowed to have an Atari 2600 like all my friends had. And this was also during the time when the Choose Your Own Adventure books had just come out. So I think they've been out for like a year or two at this point. And I wanted to play a game, but I wanted to play the game the way I wanted the story to go. So, of course, because the source code was provided and I ended up finding it, I changed and broke and fixed and broke and the whole cycle 
for months at a time and ended up having some nice versions of the games that I absolutely enjoyed playing and had many fewer limits. Endless starscapes, endless caves, that whole thing. A lot of fun. And I just basically hacked on basic, really, for several years. So that was end of elementary, did it through middle and high school. In high school, I actually ended up assisting the teacher who taught the computing class with other students that were having difficulties. And the science department, uh, the head of which was a physics guy, provided access to their computers for me. So I had access to all sorts of different operating systems and basically maintained a couple of them. And I did a bunch of AP courses in high school. I took a college physics course in high school, but this resulted in me spending early mornings, 3 a.m., 4 a.m., doing homework and just got burned out. So by the time I finished high school, when all my friends were going to their nice colleges and whatnot, I (laughs) just wanted to go like play in the woods for four years. I didn't want to do anything with school. And so I actually looked at the army because of my computing background. I said, hey, you know, maybe they can give me a job writing software. They asked for six years and I knew for a fact I would never be able to do more than four. So I said, what what other options do you have? And I ended up actually becoming an Arabic linguist and going to Monterey, California for two years, which was awesome. So that was a hiatus for me on computing. But at the end of that time, I did actually get back into while I was in the Army. I started taking some courses to prepare prepare for school and took some programming ones, languages I hadn't done before. But my passion was physics and math like it had been in high school. So I jumped back into that. And of course, sure enough, at different universities I went to, because I went to one university where I got out of the Army in Tennessee, Kentucky, and then went out to the east, back east. I was born in California, but did a lot of my growing up in Maine. So I went back to Massachusetts to a lot of the old stomping ground areas where I'd been and studied at UMass. Then there were some funding cuts with scholarship programs I was on and ended up traveling to India and going to school when I came back in Maryland. And it was there that I got really into computing again. I ended up doing a lot of work for the physics department there. Then I actually got a job at the university via a friend and did a lot of Unix stuff, was doing Linux, PHP, Perl, and that's where I got into Python. And uh, in, in fact, for um, I got into Python via Zope. So yeah, so that was my first set of real working, like actually getting paid. I did some consulting. This was also, of course, when the web started getting popular, so mid-90s. And that's really where I got into it as a paying gig. And then, let's see here, after school... Oh, right. Yeah. So when I was working for the University of Maryland, I got a call from a startup in Annapolis and they said, hey, we need people with your skills. We're doing a bunch of hiring and also we can triple your salary. And I was like, see ya. (laughs) And that was it. That was the very beginning of the roller coaster ride for me with tech because it was shortly after that that we had the dot bomb. And that was a hosting company, US Networking, and they were a spinoff. People had left Digix which was like the world's first hosting company, I think, to make USA Networking, which was an application hosting company. That was how everything got started with software in general. So you're a big fan of Lisp. You're doing a lot of stuff. And we'll probably get into your whole Lisp machine experience now. But you also did Erlang, and you're very active in the Lisp-flavored Erlang with helping out and creating a bunch of documentation and books there to help out Robert Verding spread the word about it. How did you get into the functional side coming from BASIC and Python and PHP and all that kind of stuff? What was the first exposure to the functional world 
and yeah. Lisp and Erlang specifically. So I actually had a really hard time learning object-oriented programming when it came out. Well, it came out before I was doing programming, but when I was exposed to it in Python, I had a really hard time to adapting to it. Finally got my head wrapped around it and was able to become quite productive. Uh, and it was just obviously second nature after that. But there were aspects of object-oriented programming that always kind of bothered me. I didn't know how to sort of call that out very clearly initially. But what it boiled down to later was the conflation of data and behavior or state and behavior and the fact that they are managed the same. And this really bit me many, many times in multi-threaded applications. Think Apache and various you know, mod X for the Apache web server that we had to struggle with in the late 90s and early 2000s. So there was already a seed for me at that point where things didn't feel right to me. And the other thing that started to bother me a lot, just as a general, like, conceptual, doesn't quite fit my brain thing, was all of the source code I would see and that what I would be forced to write, where there were so many deeply nested for loops with lots of state that you could pull, or, um, um, you know, global-ish variables you could pull from elsewhere. And it just got so messy. And people would write entire applications in a single function or method and it just drove me nuts. And I did more with Lisp before I ever got to Erlang and LFE. But eventually, like around 2012 or so, I started putting the Python stuff aside and was spending more and more time exploring other languages. And I was really drawn back to Lisp. I'd done a little bit with it here and there. And in fact, I'd done some Lisp in Python before Hi ever became a thing. This was 2008 or so. I was working with the Python abstract syntax tree so that I could do genetic algorithms and generate code. And I was looking at like some of the classic texts on that. Steve Koch, it's not Steve. I forget Koch. Anyways, he's got volumes and volumes of, of genetic algorithms and programming texts, all of it in Lisp. And of course, you know, the famous Nordic texts and all that, which I had a copy of since like the, the 90s. So yeah, I was gravitating towards that sort of thing. Now, that being said, Common Lisp itself isn't really a functional programming language. It, uh, I mean, I'm going to get flames for that. But, you know, it's not pure. And there's a, lo a lot of sins you can commit, and people do commit in Common Lisp uh, with you know, immutable data and global vars, um, you know, all that sort of stuff. But I still love it. I love Common Lisp. So I did a bunch of Common Lisp, picked it up again, and my main interest for years had been in you know, sort of distributed systems. That's how I got into Twisted Python. And in fact, shortly after getting into Python, I think the first network programming task I set myself when I was doing some consulting for another company to see if I could do something for them, I actually just did a Twisted thing and didn't even realize what Twisted was at the time. So I gravitated towards systems that allowed me to do, you know, run small things very fast and at scale. And I was not finding a lot of good answers for that in the common Lisp uh, world. A lot of it was sort of build your own kind of thing. And I had run across Erlang in 2007 or so. Uh, there was a huge thing on Slashdot, I think, at the time. And it was an expose of YAWS. Uh, basically, YAWS was outperforming every web server out there, just completely shamed Apache. And, you know, that's the classic what 10K problem that you hear in the airline community. We've never had that problem. <laughs> We're looking at the million, X million problem. Okay, anyway, 
So I had run across it there and was familiar with it even while I was doing the Twisted Python. And then as I was looking for a Lisp to pick up, so I looked at Common Lisp, I did a little bit of closure, and then eventually found LFE. And I think it was the third one I found, the third recent modern Lisp at the time that I had found, and sort of cycled through those three for a while. And for all the problems I was interested in solving, LFE just kept coming up on top because of the airline VM. And then I started reaching out to Robert and said, hey, you know, I've noticed this, this, this uh, with the syntax, you know, is it possible to do this too? And so I started submitting PRs against you know, the language itself and he started accepting them. And then we just started chatting more and he was asking me how I was using it. And, and it just took off from there. I mean, I did years of it with him and making contributions to the code itself as well as the docs. So, yeah, that's how I, how I got into it. And in fact, I didn't know any airline. And I taught myself Erlang by writing LFE. It's like, okay, so this is how I do it in LFE. And, you know, so it was really quite backwards from what most people uh, experience. I did not realize that interacting with you on the LFE stuff coming from the Erlang side, I said, oh, I've been exposed to some lists. It seems interesting. I don't, I haven't done enough to completely get it, mm-hmm. but I've got enough that says there's something magical here, the macros and some of these systems and all together look powerful and yeah do i wish i could do some of that stuff in the day job sometimes as an aside i wrote some javascript testing where we generated a bunch we just again it was lambdas on top of everything and someone's like how can we test that this other test case stuff was working i was like we can't because we don't have a lisp and this isn't actually code as data this is just functions we can't actually do a macro and test the output of this but i have taken plenty of inspiration from kind of that LFE understanding, uh-huh. just the Lisp understanding even. But the fact that you came in through LFE to Erlang makes an interesting yeah. makes an interesting yeah. spot. So Erlang itself is tricky to get into, especially when you're looking probably back when you did, because I started digging with some Erlang around. We got put on my radar about 2010, 2011, hearing some .NET folks talk about it and just like, hey, there's this coming out. RabbitMQ, there's these things. So you kind of hear rumors, original Facebook Messenger before they rewrote it and then bought WhatsApp and stuff. Yep. There was that radar. But getting into Erlang around 2012 even was still like, this is not a nice streamlined story like it is today <laughs> with the influence of Elixir. Yep, yep. How was that coming in through LFE into Erlang and learning that and like picking up this whole ecosystem because... Just the ecosystem was not geared as user-friendly as it has started to be. Right. So, yeah, in fact, my first contact with Erlang was like in 2007 or so. And that's, I had experimented with the idea of learning it. And I looked at the syntax. I was like, there's no way. I don't have the time to sit down and learn this. I'm way too busy with other stuff. Can I run like Python as an include? And, you know, so like that's what I was looking at. And I just gave up and, and, and didn't come back to it till later. But to really answer your question, though, you have to remember that I was involved in Common Lisp first, which has a much worse story than Erlang ever did. So as far as like, uh, you know, cohesiveness of documentation. Whatnot. Now, that being said, the Common Lisp hyperspec is a masterwork and uh, I've used it extensively. What I'm really referring to is not a particular work like that, but rather an active community with a cohesive picture. So there really isn't a single vision of here is your introduction, here's how we funnel new users in, and here's how you learn everything. 
you know, like Ruby obviously has that, Python has that. In fact, Rust has that now too. It's quite beautiful what Rust has done. So yeah, it was challenging, but honestly, not as challenging as Common Lisp. And it was, um, and as such, because that had been my most recent foray, Erlang felt just fine to me. It was actually kind of fun to learn the LFE Lisp quirks in combination with learning Erlang itself. But I was a very, very slow Erlang reader. I read LFE much, much faster and could obviously write it. I couldn't write Erlang at all. Any attempt to write it, and it would just result in syntax errors because I'd forget a, a comma or a period or didn't remember what the rules around semicolons were and case statements and that sort of thing. So, yeah. But, yeah, I was writing all LFE. And my Erlang knowledge at the time was mostly theoretical. And, in fact, I was treating I was treating Erlang like the original Lisp M expressions. <laughs> so it was like, for me, in my mind, Erlang is the language for papers and what, when you publish. And practically, I'm writing LFE. So, yeah, that's kind of kind of a weird twist. M expressions was the original proposed syntax that Lisp would have, and it just never got around to being done. Everyone liked the S expression so much, and it really was. It was treated as the abstract syntax tree of, of a new proposed language, and everybody loved just working. It was so easy to work with the abstract syntax tree directly that that just Lisp stayed that. <laughs> Forgot its, its front end, as it were. I hadn't thought about that from the Erlang and LFE side. I'd thought about that with the Elixir side, seeing the way that they build their and output their abstract syntax tree there, where it's like, oh, okay, Elixir kind of took some lispy stuff, but made it more like the M expression version of that right. based off how they were yep. doing some of that stuff. So that yep. I've seen those ideas come across in, yep. Yep. in other languages too, whether intentional or not. But I didn't yeah. actually think about the LFE and Erlang relationship that Erlang is the M expression version of the LFE. You, you, you can see it that way. It's a little bit backwards in part of the analogy, but yeah, there, there's, you could make a, You've done LFE. You said LFE has its Lisp quirks. You've also done some closure. You've done your common Lisp. Mm-hmm. When you look at all these lists across the board, what are the things that you find are core to what you look for in a Lisp playing with a bunch? Because each one has its own flavor. You talk about Lisp 1 and yeah. Lisp 2 even, but then it's like, and here's this other set. What are some of those things that you look at and how you think about where you would pick one up because sometimes you're gravitating towards common list for something you're doing Erlang for something. I know you did closure. Where are these different things and where do you see the different strengths of the different lists? I love common list. So I am, I'm an SBCL user. I love SBCL. Very, very fast, really efficient compiler. So when I want to do Lisp that is going to be executing code that is going to be fast. And in some cases it is as fast as C or remarkably close depending on what you're doing that's where i go it's quite beautiful and there's some really good stuff you can do with it lots of lisp 2 lisp 1 world so shows scheme which i think is now owned by cisco and open sourced compiles i think to c i forget exactly but anyway it runs very very fast as well and that's a really nice alternative especially for folks that like the lisp 1 so that's where I go to common list for. I, I tend to be a list two person in general. So, so yeah, I tend to go for more common list type things than I do schemes. Closure is, is a wonderful language in a lot of different ways. 
One of the most impressive ways that closure is a, is a beautiful language is the manner in which Rich Hickey has decided to organize the libraries, in particular, the consistency across the board with arguments to functions. So you will either be passing, depending on the type of function, you will either be passing the primary data as the first argument or as the very last argument. And there are two macros, two threading macros that allow you to utilize that pattern. So what you will find is across the board, the types of functions that you tend to use together and compose will adopt one of those. And so then you can use these threading macros that basically let you line up your functions, pass your data straight through that stack on that same argument position for each one of those functions. And to organize your entire language's library, core library, such that that sort of thing is possible is a feat of just excellence. It makes for an extremely consistent developer experience and a powerful set of almost mathematical tools in a programming language. Now, the downside, of course, is that it's built on the JVM, but that is also the upside because if you are forced to be in an environment where you have to do like enterprise stuff and hey, it's JVM or the, or the highway, you actually get to use Clojure. And so I was at USGS. I was hired there as well as at NASA on a contract, two different contracts to do closure programming for them. And that was amazing. Both of those two agencies uh, were, had phenomenal individuals, phenomenal projects. The focus there was just earth science, basically, satellite data and working to help scientists combat climate change and document climate change. So that was a phenomenal experience and both programmatically as well as professionally. So all those being said, the LFE joys that I get tie back into my earliest passions in computing, and that is small, lightweight chunks of functionality that are distributed across arbitrary computing resources. And LFE is, abs and Erlang, obviously, unbeatable, absolutely unbeatable for this. There is no Lisp that can do what LFE does in this realm, and that is the realm that has always meant the most to me. So while I do gravitate towards other Lisps for a lots of different things, and I've only mentioned a few of the many that I use, LFE is the one that I enjoy the most and tackles the problems that I care about the most. So you mentioned you're using Clojure for two contracts, and you got lucky that you were able to do the Clojure languages as part of that. <laughs> Are you find yourself lucky enough that you're able to do common scheme or LFE as part of your day jobs and work too, or is all this stuff pretty much hobby lists that in your own personal projects, and then you're just taking it where it can come the day job kind of thing? I actually did do consulting for LFE for a while after I left Silicon Valley and came out to Minnesota. I was doing consulting for about a year for a startup that was using LFE. That was a wonderful time. Honestly, though, so I, you know, I'm getting older and I've revealed my age probably a couple of times early on in the background. And especially in this current time, it's great to have a job doing anything remotely related to computing. And so I'm not super, super picky about what tech I get to use at my job anymore. And honestly, a lot of the reasons that I get hired at different places these days is just for my background and my experience. And I end up doing a lot of tutoring and mentoring for newer engineers, which has a whole set of joys and challenges all its own. You know, I still get to do code. So I've learned Go recently. I've learned Rust recently. And these are, are great things to have, great, great skills to have. But the thing that I enjoy most is 
So I also do a little bit of woodworking and those projects that I get to do after work, you know, when I turn off the work computer and I'm going about my regular life, I want to work on things that I absolutely love. Playing a really beautiful guitar, working in a workshop with some good tools and great wood and writing software with the aspiration for it to become craftsmanship level and choosing whatever platform I want to do that on. Those are like the, the real beautiful elements of life for me right now. I don't look for those. I don't expect those to come in my day job. If I do get them, and they do, they, they do pop up, but I don't sit around waiting for them and I don't try to make them happen. I want to you know, make my employer happy. I want to make my teams happy. But in my downtime, I really want to experience the joy of, of excellence and craftsmanship. And so that's what I do with, with LFE mostly these days. I do expect that there is going to be a little bit of interest coming up. And I don't set aside the possibility for doing you know, more pay work for that. But that's not my focus. And, and honestly, if it happens, I so don't care. Um, I'm having a lot of fun. And in fact, it was our CTO at the company uh, recently left to do a new gig. And he was there at the company, I don't know, like eight or 10 years. And one of the things that we talked about when during my initial interview with him was working with Erlang and getting him some experience with that and showing him some of the beauties of it. And we had some great plans to do that because he'd expressed a lot of interest in, in Erlang and Elixir. And we never got around to it. And he's a great guy. We became phenomenal friends. And so for his departure... I made a going away card, which was a software project. And that's where I did the ports. So I set up an airline port with common lisp and go. This was like sort of a joke, you know, like I'm the common lisp guy. He's the go guy. And then airline was running both of them under a supervision tree. And I took quotes from Slack for both of us. And you could type messages in, get a random quote, all that sort of thing, crash the server, have it bring it back up the whole nine yards, walked him through it. So basically it was a, it was like, hey, man, I love you. I'm going to miss you. Here's a gift from my heart for you. Also, some kind of funny jokes here from the time that we spent together. And hey, we finally do get to do some airline together as you are walking out the door. <laughs> and that actually is what got me back. I was so consumed for work for so many years. That's what actually got me back into doing airline and LFE again, was that, that gift from the heart and just tasting it again was something I just simply couldn't set aside. It was the irresistible fruit of incomparable taste and allure. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's since that since that going away this summer, I've been back into LFE full-time. It's been amazing. So you mentioned helping to guide and mentor and bring up some of the junior engineers and things like that. How much of this LISPS experience and other experience and functional experience are you integrating in with that to say, we might not be doing this, but there are those principles. Like even if we're doing OO in the day job, I'm sure you folded in all that list background and functional programming because that just makes up again, whatever experience you have, you wind up bringing in with you. Yeah. When you're, yeah. when you're bringing that in, how are you finding your pushing slash encouraging new yeah. people to adopt these ideas? If nothing else for the, this will save you a dozen years of frustration by the time you get in this. It's object-oriented, but you make as many value objects as you can before you yeah. go into non-value objects. Yes, money. There is one money. It is a value object. I don't care what anybody else tells you. Just go with this thing and and save those life lessons. Because there's the functional side that you might be expressing. And then there's that little, like, you know, Lisp has this thing. Let me, show, like, let me pull up this little common Lisp console and 
do the right. Paul Graham blog post of like, you know, you could, these 50 lines here, you could do this in like two and, in yeah. closure or common list or LFE kind of thing. What does that look like when you're introducing people on some of these? I, just even the high level concepts, like we're going to yeah. get rid of this four. You don't think it's possible? We'll, I'll, we'll show you kind of thing. That's actually, I've never finished answering your previous question, which I should do first because it leads into that nicely. But yeah, so I mentioned the object oriented, all the four loops of the deeply nested stuff. So that when I did finally come across like hardcore functional programming, like Haskell, I did a bunch of that, you know, a couple of years ago. It was like, oh, thank God. This is you know, like panting. This is what I've been needing. So, you know, being able to do folds, reduces, you know, whatever you call it, maps was just instantly, instantly. It wasn't like I didn't have to parse it, think about it. I was like, oh, this is what I've been waiting for. Now, that being said, I do have a, a background in math. So that's going to that's gonna make that easier. But to that point, the fact that functional programming is so closely connected to mathematics, what you have inevitably then is a very clear statement of your problem domains and the potential sets of solutions for those and very, very clear approaches. And that clarity of thought is worth a thousand degrees. I mean, it doesn't matter what kind of computer science background you have. If you don't have a clarity of thought, then you're going to be useless in a job. Having that clarity of thought makes you invaluable in any given team you work for. So that's the thing that is fundamental to functional programming that I bring into every single discussion with new engineers is, and I don't harp on it, but I wait. If I start to see some clouded visions, some easily made mistakes where you, you know, confusing one thing for the other that result from not super clear understanding of the problem domain or sets of solutions or their potential pitfalls in the future, because they're not breaking things down in terms of input, output even metaphorically, then that's when I'll speak up and I'll say, hey, so let's tackle this at the lowest level and then we'll skyrocket real quick through up to the point where you are getting what you need to solve this particular problem. And the reception for that a few years ago wasn't super great. But honestly, I kind of attribute this to age difference and experience difference because they're a little bit more closer to being peers previously. But, you know, after 10, 20 years now, the new engineers, of course, are actually, you know, just by default looking up to me as somebody who just simply has a lot of experience that they want to learn from. So it makes that part easier. And if I don't harp on it, if I don't go on and on in lecture, then they're going to be much more receptive to, to the various ideas. And of course, it gives them the time to go off and explore on their own and do some learning without me giving them everything. So, yeah, uh, functional programming is the core of my beating heart when it comes to software engineering and everything I do stems from that. Also, to answer like a, a semi-question you kind of expressed there, Erlang itself, a lot of what we do in this world as software engineers, if you're doing anything in the cloud or anything with uh, any other platform that's distributed in any way, at some level, we are working with distributed systems. Even if we're just consuming uh, collections of software or, or services that are distributed and not actually having to do anything with CRDTs ourselves or anything like that, it still behooves the engineer to understand the basics of what's happening in a distributed system. And the failure to understand the basics like that, the failure to understand what are the theoretical ways in which you could manage systems of systems? You know, what are the theoretical ways you could well, do any of it. the reason it's interesting to explore the theoretical is because that helps you envision possible and practical, and it gives you a framework with which you can properly state the given problem you have. 
And so one of the things that I have done is surreptitiously and in concept only taught some of the basics of, of Erlang. Obviously, no syntax if it's metaphorical in nature. But, you know, talking about things like supervision trees, talking about things like strategies for restart, monitoring processes, linking processes together, linking functions together. You know, I say processes, but I mean them, you know, as you know, I mean them in the Erlang sense of the word, not the OS or threading sense. So, yeah, all of these play into this very much. I'm actually in the process of putting together a workshop for a bunch of engineers at work. And this is actually probably going to be something for a little bit more senior engineers at work. And I am very sorely tempted to make the workshop Erlang-based. And the whole idea is not to teach Erlang, but the workshop will be for distributed systems basics. You know, what, what does it mean to run systems and maintain systems? How do you need to think about systems of systems? And what are the ways in which you can manage these? And by teaching them sort of some of the patterns that, that are provided in OTP, it's like, okay, throw away everything that I've taught you about Erlang and OTP, but just remember the patterns, you know, after this workshop. And that you have actually, with your fingers, typed something into the computer where you have manifested a pattern that did this thing that you need and care about in production. Yeah, I'm grinning and looking over at the bookshelf in the corner as you're talking about this because it was an early episode with Reed Draper, and he said, if you write a web app, you're writing a distributed system. Because you got the client on one machine and you got the server on another. And I kind of had that gut feeling of knowing that from just working on a other web app and .NET back in the day where it was like, it was a food service spec management kind of thing. So you'd manage your recipes or your ingredients and things like that. It's like, so what if two people happen to be making the same changes on the system at the same time? It's like, well, last right wins. It's like, yeah. <laughs> Isn't that dangerous? Or are we going to like, should we try and solve it? It's like, eh, they just kind of know that they're, they'll communicate themselves that they're not going to try and do this. And this was back in the 2000s. So it was like, exactly. Eh. But it was like, you get that gut feeling. And then it's like, you start picking this stuff up. And I was looking at the bookshelf. It was like the uh, Fowler series from Madison Wesley, the enterprise integration patterns. And you sit there oh, and yeah. read all this. Oh, and yeah. you're like, oh, I start to get this. And then you go look at Erling and yep. you look at designing for applications of scalability and OTP yeah. and things by Francesco. And you're like, wait, I can do this whole book enough to implement all these and like correlation identifiers and everything else. Or I can just do Erlang and yes. get a lot of this out of the box. Exactly. And, and that reinforces that, right? Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned the early 2000s. And then that's exactly the problem that we saw there is you would have these multi-threaded applications, these web applications, and you get all of these terrible conflicts in data and resource allocation. And to get around that was tricky. For Python, there's also the global interpreter lock. So that made things especially tricky. And that's because, honestly, like, okay, so not maybe not because absolutely. But from one point of view, it's because you're not treating the web application as a distributed system. Treat it as a distributed system. Apply the same principles of design, of troubleshooting, debugging, etc. And all of a sudden, your pains just go away. Of course, there's the burden of learning and there's the burden of all these other bits of, of engineering you need to take on. But when you do that, you don't have those old pains. And it's a lot of that. We just solved that with sticky sessions, though, right? <laughs> As opposed to the so early thing, it's like, old... it doesn't matter where the session lives. It could be on five different boxes. We'll route it there eventually, right? That pain and all the others are what make us who we are today as functional programmers. Yeah. So you bring in Erlang and you're looking at these Erlang ideas. 
where does the Lisp stuff fit in, besides from functional? Because you mentioned common Lisp is a functional language, but it's not really functional because you got... Yeah, it's not pure. It's not pure. Yeah. We should say it does yeah, yeah, yeah. It does satisfy many of the of the qualifications of a functional. There's a lot of common Lisp object system stuff and things like yes. that where you're going full on OO and Lisp. Where does the Lisp side come in and that little magic power of Lisp that you get when you start <laughs> to introduce some of these ideas to new folks? Because... And again, I'm looking at the time, but I do want to get into all your whole Lisp machine experiences and things like that that you've been picking up recently as well. So, yeah. So honestly, for me, is a terrible answer. Terrible is, is some sort of marketing tool, anyway. <laughs> I love parentheses. I absolutely do. It's the order of precedence for mathematics. You, you're taught this in class as children in school. It helps you keep things straight. It goes back to the clear thinking point I made earlier. I also, the simple little things like two-space indentation of Lisp code to, you know, all that, that none of that deeply nested stuff, but just nice trim little bits all properly nested. Oh, it's just an aesthetic wonderland for me. And I know that that runs counter to very many people's experiences. And in fact, to be perfectly frank, I think my early experiments with Lisp in the 90s, I was like, eh, not so fun. Because for me at that time, the language was syntax. You know, really, fairly newish to different languages. And it was the syntax that was your first touch with the language. Having been through countless syntaxes, it's really the core of the language that, that means the most now. And honestly, the less syntax, the better. And you pretty much can't have less syntax than less because you're dealing basically with something that's almost an abstract syntax tree. So, yeah. So that was part of your question. And then when you oh, right. when yeah. you feed this into bringing your Lisp experience to others that you're working with, what is it about Lisp? Because Lisp can be so many things, but also nothing at the same time because it it's so amorphous depending on how you manage to use it. I'm hesitant, honestly, to advocate too much for Lisp to folks. I think a lot of the reasons for that are the people that I have contact with are much more interested in practical benefits of things like distributed systems. So they would be much more intrigued by Elixir and Airline. Also, they'd be more intrigued by Rust due to its safety and managing memory and its speed and other, other various benefits that you get from languages like Go and, and whatnot. So I do tend to not bring up the list thing, except as just in general, I let them know, of course, I love lists. They, there's no secret there, and they know that I'm always hacking on something fun. And I'll show them fun examples every once in a while when there's a neat, neat little bit of elegance that is, is nicely expressed in Lisp. Are there any specific Lisp learnings? Because it's like, Lisp has macros. But if you're not doing a, a language with macros, other than just saying, well, you know, if we had like Lisp or something, this macro problem would be easy to do. There are certain things <laughs> like that, but it's like hard to sell. Is there anything that's Lisp specific that becomes easier to translate into other languages, separated out just from some of the functional programming aspects in general that you found? Is there anything that Lisp shines in that you can say, if you learn Lisp, regardless of if you do or not, like mm -hmm. I know Paul Graham in the early days had some of this stuff and there was like, the, before you got map and reduce and fold everywhere, like that was one of the things you could kind of like, that was kind of unique to an expressive list and you could like build this whole thing. Macros are another one. Is there anything that you found with Lisp that you like helps you sell some of these ideas to your coworkers? Not really, to be honest, because again, so many languages have borrowed from Lisp now that a lot of those early things, you know, which you just sort of indicated, have been incorporated into other languages. 
Now there is, I love histories. I love seeing the stories of things and how they, how they begin and how they become. And if you're going to do anything with computing history, Lisp is going to figure prominently in that. And so for those that do enjoy hearing the stories about things and where they come from, it's definitely a big draw to have direct experience with that language. As for macros, I definitely do bring this up as appropriate, but really I advocate for very low utilization of macros. If you're learning it, use it a thousand times a day if you can. I mean, over and over again, learn everything you possibly can. It will, will expand your, your mind, your capabilities as a, as a programmer, clarity of thought. Good Lord, to debug macros effectively, you are going to have to keep a lot of good stuff in your head at once and it demands clarity of thought. So yeah. Really great stuff there. Macros, I really suggest that people use macros when when you need to build a DSL. So a good example of this is the wrappers for Erlang's eUnit library that we've done at LFA, so the LTest library. This is a library chock full of macros because what you're doing is you're defining a language that you use in a test file, def test, etc. So that is a great example for it. You're never going to actually use def test to deploy something in production and then have to troubleshoot it. No, you're just going to use it in your tooling. It's going to be really safe. And as long as all the tests are passing for the syntax, et cetera, et cetera, it's good to go. That's a great example. Now, that doesn't mean don't use a DSL in production, but boy, you want to be really careful when you do that. And there are a lot of good cases for that. I don't know the details, but ITA, um, the airline reservation system that was bought by Google, was a huge chunk of that system were written in Common Lisp. And I can only imagine that there were a fair number of DSLs involved for that, that special case, their business logic and business needs uh, for processing, reporting, that sort of thing. Another great match, you know, so parsing of data for complex sets of problems that are repeatable. Great, perfect fit for a DSL. Macro it up. But yeah, they can get pretty tricky and can do crazy things if you aren't super careful and don't have 100% coverage on tests. So yeah, macros are a great thing to use and advocate for for special cases. Also, you know, reader macros, the ability to intercept the reader and say, hey, you know what? I know you're expecting an S expression here, but I'm writing my own language. Like Muddle, for instance, the thing that was used to write Zork, angle brackets, instead of parentheses and lots of stuff for basically helping you write interactive stories. You intercept that code and then you perform a transformation on it into Lisp so that then you can pass it on to the to the interpreter or whatever, wherever else it's going to go, the compiler. Phenomenal reader macros. And I've been talking to Robert for years about reader macros and LFE, and he's got some really good ideas for getting this into maybe the next version or so of LFE. But I recently actually, uh, as part of a new book we're putting together, Introducing the REPL, chapter one, it's like, hey, you know what? You can write your own REPL. Here's how you do it. And it's very, a very simple REPL, but it instantly gives the user that feeling that, that, that like, oh, wow, I can like control my language. This is amazing. And I extended that then. I'm making a new chapter uh, for the casting spells in LFE, which is a port of the casting spells in Lisp book, the famous one. And I'm adding a new chapter that that wasn't in the original. He'd, he'd intentionally left it out. He didn't want to write a chapter on reader macros due to the complexity of it. But it's actually a much simpler story in LFE because in this particular example, you're just intercepting values before it gets to the evaluator, the LFE evaluator. And so the ability to do that, to show like you can write your own text-based adventure and you don't have to have parentheses in it and it can still be in the LFE uh, REPL. You know, that's that's a big deal. That's like 
you're now in language laboratory territory. And this is amazing. It's a great learning space for the, the dedicated computer scientist. That's part of what makes Racket so powerful, it sounds like, too. Exactly. Racket is a phenomenal, maybe even the paragon for exactly that. Yep. So you mentioned the new book. And being in that LFE chat and seeing this, it's the LFE machine manual that you're... That's right. The manual. <laughs> and so I've just seen you post on Twitter and in that chat, you're pulling in all these old virtual machines and virtual machines inside of virtual machines so you can run these old list machines. What have you found with going back and running all these list machines? Is there something that stands out? Essentially treasures lost in time or things that... Because I've seen some screenshots of them like, some of them look small talkish, where it's like, here's the whole environment, and you got a whole IDE, and yeah. everything's built in, and you're like, yes, you may love yeah. Emacs, you may love Vim, you may love whatever editor you have, but like, there's this whole giant ecosystem of stuff that, yeah. what are some of those things that you found that are kind of hidden treasures as you're pulling up all these different lists, just to see how all the different lists work? You know, honestly, the most profound hidden treasures in all of this are the people. The original authors of these various tools and documents. And I am just floored and delighted that there is such a, however small, incredibly passionate and active community in preserving some of these old bits of technology and reaching out and chatting with the people that are, you know, still active in various, sometimes maybe not computer science, but doing other things. Ken Pittman's a great example of this. He was pinged on a particular thread I was having with one of the guys that maintains the PDP-10 virtualization effort. And oh, no, I take it back. It was somebody else who's doing um, the Catter, the Catter uh, machine, list machine, the one that was done at MIT, not the one that was done at Symbolics or LMI. So he reached out to Kent Pittman about a particular question. And so then here's Kent Pittman in a thread with us on Twitter talking about this stuff. And he starts regaling us with phenomenal stories of Mac Lisp and all sorts of other things that were going on at the time with uh, the Lisp machines. And this is, you know, 70s time period. Amazing stories, like incredible, incredibly fun, heartwarming, human interest stories and sharing just some of the joys and excitements of the time, you know, that, that any software engineer can instantly identify with if they've had even one good experience in their lives. These folks were working on stuff at an absolute golden age. I mean, you had ARPA with all its phenomenal funding. You had MIT and Stanford and Berkeley committing phenomenal academic resources to solving these problems and exploring this this brand new space. And you don't see anything like that. And you haven't really seen anything like that since pretty much the end of the 70s and it died off in, in the mid 80s. And I forget when the ARPA funding was was seriously cut, but honestly, that was, that was the end of the golden age is when that funding was cut. So much beautiful stuff happened at that time. And a lot of it, if you look through the histories, you're going to see a lot of connections to Lisp. Uh, I think it would be overstating things if I were to say a lot of it was Lisp. But there are a lot of connections back to, to Lisp and what was done, especially at the Project Mac at MIT, which is where Maxima came from. That gave birth to eventually to however much Wolfram is going to deny it. It gave birth to Mathematica. He was like the top user of Maxima, submitted tons of bugs and feature requests. And there's an open source version of that not spelled M-A-C-S-Y-M-A, but rather maxim as a minimum maxima, but from the same uh, source code as the original, it has that lineage that it got converted into common list. But anyway, beautiful software came out of that. MacLisp came out of it, and MacLisp spawned a bunch of things, one of which was list machines, 
which became Zeta Lisp, their stuff. And in fact, the package colon function in Zeta Lisp is what you see in LFE. I'm not sure where Erlang got it because LFE obviously directly takes that syntax from, from Erlang, but it's the same exact thing that you see in, in Zeta Lisp. And that's where Mac, I think that's where Common Lisp got it from was, was Zeta Lisp. The Lisp machines were huge contributors towards the intellectual body of work that became Common Lisp. Yeah, so just lots of amazing stuff came out of this time period. So the people are phenomenal, connecting with the stories, hearing these great stories about the PDP-10s, you know, the incompatible time-sharing operating system, and actually being able to boot it up and run it and issue those commands and start up MacLisp and use the very early, almost prototypical Emacs editors to do these things. And in fact, one of the one of the maintainers of the PDP-10 showed me shortcuts that he that I could use where I was sort of going a roundabout way. It's like you can actually, from the operating system in Mac Lisp, pipe stuff into Emacs and have it come back out and run and be present, uh, compiled in your operating system. Ah, just mind blowing. There was so much stuff done at that time, you know, in the 70s, where we are barely caught up now in our IDEs. And all of that work was basically lost for a while. And whether that inspired directly or indirectly what we now see in our IDEs and, you know, various integrations like Emacs integrations with Slime and that sort of thing, whether or not that's direct, it doesn't matter to me. It's spiritual. It's there. There is a lineage and it didn't get lost. So, but there's a lot of really great stuff that still wasn't done. I mean, like you were saying, you know, the, the graphical sort of the comprehensive environments that you see in list machines, like the Xerox Park flavor of it. It wasn't Genera. That was the, um, it was Medley. Um, so their take on it, Xerox Park was you know, a research facility of brilliance. I mean, if there's anything that sort of inherited that ARPANET ethos and pathos, it would be Xerox Park. What a phenomenal place. How much great stuff came out of there. And yeah, they had a version of Lisp Machine. I'm not sure if theirs was prior to Smalltalk and Smalltalk environment, but given the amount of cross-pollination and, and collaboration that took place at that facility, I can only imagine that at the very least they... They knew of each other, and if, and it might have been, one might have inspired the other. I would suspect it went from Lisp into Smalltalk as the direction of that causality, but I don't know for sure. So we've covered a lot. I do have one question before we get to any other future things that you're doing. Just more curiosity and share with anybody who's a Lisp fan and a because you've got your experience with Common Lisp, you've got your experience with Closure, you've got your experience with LFE. You mentioned doing LFE using common list ports. <laughs> Have you done anything where you've kind of integrated that with Clojure because you're like, oh, I need the JVM and the Erlang and the JVM has that nice integration where you're like, fine, I'm just doing all LFE to all Clojure. And if I need to punch out to something else, that would be a C port. It's common list. Like, have you gone down that rabbit hole deep enough yet in any scenarios that you've hit? Yeah, a little bit. In fact, I've got some older projects that I haven't touched in a while. Clojang. And this was an effort I started, I think, 2014 or so, and it evolved over time. And basically what I've done is taken Erlang's J interface and created something I think just called JFace. And it's a really low-level closure wrapper for that Java. And then above that level, I think that's the Clojang level, is a much more idiomatic closure API that does all the data type conversions for you under the hood so you don't have to do any of that wrangling. So those two things allow you to basically create Erlang nodes in LFE and also create JVM nodes 
in LFE and run them, interoperate with them, and and also ac- access them from from Closure. That was the the other side of that. Yep. So there's like a you can do the full thing now. The J interface, at the risk of criticizing something I don't fully understand, the J interface, the bits, the low level bits that I've looked at, I've not felt comfortable running those in production. I don't feel that they are utilizing the best resources for that in the JVM world. And so I wouldn't recommend production level code sitting in um, you know, a JVM node that was built from ultimate very bottom J interface. As a transitory thing, absolutely go for it. But hey, you know what? If you want to put it under a supervision tree and just restart if it bombs out, go for it. I mean, hey, that's a, one of the excellences of... Uh, uh, so yeah, anyway, there's lots of interesting stuff there. I've done a lot of back and forth between Clojure and LFE in the past. Not so much lately, but yeah. There are other avenues to explore too that you mentioned that I, I have not done though. Yep. And then you've got the LFE machine manual inspired from the Lisp machine manuals. But I've also seen you in the past when you got into LFE, you had about a half a dozen projects to a dozen projects going on around LFE. What are some of the other things that are on your radar that are your, you might be picking up one thing one night and maybe it's Mondays are this, Tuesdays are this, Wednesdays are this kind of thing. What else is on your radar around LFE, Lisp, any of this other stuff that's getting you excited in the software or just things you've seen that has got you excited to dig more into in the future and maybe yeah. make add another day of the week so you can have a day to dedicate to it. Exactly. In fact, just this morning, I had to sit down since getting back into LFE. I've got a thousand projects that I'm working on side by side. I'm starting to lose track. So I had to actually write them all down. So a fun one that just started the other day as a result of a blog post, uh, airline blog post, was the sound of Erlang that was done, and they did some generation of, of tones using sine waves. So I ported that to LFE, I tweeted about it, and I'm actually in the process of finishing up the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy theme for that, that bit of code, and that's been a lot of fun to do that, which, of course, instantly upon, even uh, even before I wrote a stick of LFE for that port, I recalled my time spent with both Closure Overtone and Collider, uh, Super Collider directly. And so I refreshed my memory, checked to see what the current status was, and oh hey, you know, and this might not be something I even remembered uh, or even knew at the time, but you can talk to the Super Collider synthesizer server using UDP or TCP. And so I looked at the Common Lisp uh, project that does this and thought what fun it would be to do this in LFA. So I've got another project there that I've just started up where I'm I'm actually starting to integrate with Super Collider. And that's a lot of fun. I can't wait to get some nice tones out of that because you can do full uh, polyphony in there where the example from the Airline blog post the other day is just a quick little mono, mono example. So back to the Chinual, the LFE Chinual. This is basically a resuscitated couple of projects that I've merged into one and added new structure and new flavor. And really using, I mean, the Chinual was a phenomenal masterwork in systems documentation. And the nice thing about a Lisp machine that is so close to the heart of LFE is that it was basically an operating system written in Lisp with the interactive environments provided in Lisp and the window manager performed by Lisp. And these machines were specifically manufactured to target the data structures and memory optimizations for Lisps. So the reason that's such a good fit is because 
Erlang is kind of an operating system in a lot of ways. It's a systems programming language that really takes it to the to the next level. And LFE, of course, inherits that. And so Robert and I have talked about actually having a bare metal install of uh, of LFE on a Raspberry Pi with a full suite of things that we could demo that would really be an immersive environment and a complete environment for the adventurous hacker who wants to put together some interesting stuff and spend 100% of their time in the beam and never even touch the OS. So one of the things the project, so, so right, the Chinual is, is an effort to really do a massive comprehensive documentation effort on LFE, all the ways in which you do the airline stuff in LFE, all the patterns that you can utilize, lots of examples, lots of good prose, lots of stories and history, just a really full experience. It's honestly going to be a multi-year project of just a lot of fun and a lot of love, but it's something that people can already start using and, and reading now. So it's not like it's, it's going to be hidden away until it's done. So that's the book side. The physical side is we're actually looking at different boards that we can get, uh, Robert and I, that we can do installs using both the Nerves project as well as just straight up like BusyBox style, uh, Builderit style stuff our, ourselves with none of the other on top. Just lots of different ways of, of using LFE on hardware. Part of that is going to be uh, the ability to do a graphical window manager, basically, in LFE. So that's a project I've started. I took Joe Armstrong's experiments in X11 and Xorg that people have made some modifications to and refactored out massively because it was a very old project with, with not a lot of organization. Now it's much more organized. It's a standard. Uh, and I've started porting some of the stuff to LFE. And I renamed it to TV. And TV is the joke name that the, the list machine folks gave to their window manager. So yeah, that's another project I'm working on. A lot of X11 stuff, which is a lot of fun. What else? Oh yeah, I'm gonna, I already mentioned the one about the casting spells where you can basically write your own mini language inside LFE. So that's going to be a nice bit of fun for folks. I've got a ton of back, a uh, huge backlog on a ton of blog posts for LFE. Got drafts like crazy that I need to get out there. And then, of course, we're testing. We're actively testing LFE 2.0 right now. And Robert's adding more features. We're discussing feature sets, uh, keeping it fairly minimal, but a lot of big changes. And it's extremely exciting. We're having a great deal of fun. And we're able to resuscitate a lot of old projects and port them over to the new version of LFE. And then lots of help on Slack for new users who are very excited about LFE. So all of this stuff is keeping me fairly busy. So where can people find you or find good references? And we'll get these in the show notes for you to keep up to date with what's going on. Updates on LFE if they're interested. Where's the best place for people to get started in LFE? And I'll let you take that. And then where are anything that you're doing, if it's LFE related or not directly if they can keep up with you and find out and follow along with what you are, whether or not it goes into LFE or just other list machine variations and digging in history and sharing things like that. So let's see here. First and foremost, the best resource on LFE right now is LFE.io. There's a new website out and everything that is published on that website is up to date, with the exception that you're going to see videos that reference older versions of LFE and older syntaxes. So be careful when you look at those old videos. They're more for historical and enthusiastic interest than they are for actual learning. You want to look at the, the books that are uh, present on, at the bottom of that page on LFE.io. All of that's up to date. Be careful of the old doc site that has not been updated yet. We're not doing a lot of redirecting to there right now, but there's still a lot of really amazing resources. 
So LFE.io is the best place to go. And there's an invite, a call out at the bottom of the page for Slack. Hop on Slack and come chat with us. And we'll be able to point you the rest of the way. So there's some really good resources still in crufty, hidden parts of older sites. And we still point people directly towards those when they need them until that's been moved into something like the Chenual. Oh, yeah. And if you want to follow, so if you want to have a direct conversation with me, that's the place to have it is on Slack. Ping me and, and chat with me there. You can follow me on Twitter. Uh, I do some interesting stuff there, things that I'm enjoying and experimenting with. And I tend to stay away from politics. However, I am passionate about civil rights, human decency, love for our fellow human beings of any type. And so people will see retweets from me that share that passion and that love. But you're not going to see any political stuff. Probably not. Maybe a favorite here and there, but mostly you're not. You're going to see more civil rights type stuff. But more than that, overwhelmingly, you're going to see math, a little bit of physics, a lot of computing, a lot of Lisp, and a lot of LFE. So if that is your cup of tea, then uh, you're more than welcome to follow me there. And then do you have any call to actions or things you want to bring up to people listening that we haven't covered yet? Is there anything that you want to make sure people understand, look into, put on their radar besides everything we've covered with the list stuff already? Yeah, I do actually. And it's cultural more than anything, personal cultural. It's, it's something you used to hear more of that you don't hear them anymore. But, you know, like Joseph Campbell said, follow your bliss. You know, go out there and really explore, have a good time and do something you absolutely love. Make time for it, wherever it is. If it's at home, if it's at work, if you can fit it in, whatever, find something and follow that bliss and have a really good time. Because as we can see, there is a lot of life that is not so much fun. Life, a lot of life is suffering. <laughs> so if we can find some places where we can experience that bliss, it's going to make everybody's lives better. So yeah, do that. And maybe that might even be LFE for you. <laughs> well, it's been wonderful talking with you outside of just the Slack messages or the email exchanges in the past or Twitter exchanges in the past to actually hear a voice and get more instant real-time feedback conversation. So it's been great having you on. Oh, thanks, man. I'm sure we can get back in and have you back on with more updates to LFE and the Chinuel for LFE and everything else in the future and just anything else you've dug into and have found around Lisp for LFE in general. That'd be fun. And you know what would be fun, too, is to do like have a, a three-part conversation with you, me, and Robert. That'd be a lot of fun, too. I have had Robert in the past to try mm -hmm. and get on, but we've always had scheduling conflicts. He's always busy yeah, he is. with He's a bunch busy. of stuff. But yeah, that yeah. would be fantastic as well. Super fun. Maybe for an LFE 2.0 celebration, we can we can do a little mini panel and share some stories. And yeah, there's a, a great interview that I did with him. I pieced together actually a blog post where I pieced together a couple of conversations and an impromptu interview. And it'd be fun to dig into some of that and, and hear some more of those stories from him. So yeah, yeah, we should definitely do it. It's been a pleasure for my end too, by the way. It's been years so that we, we've known each other. And this is the first time we've actually been able to connect like this. And it's, it's a blast and an honor. Thank you very much. Thank you. And yeah, we'll have to get you on 2.0 with Robert or just something else in the future as more things come through. So Sounds great. Always great interacting with you online, but a pleasure talking with you through some actual audio and things like that. And actually seeing your face in person and then like, <laughs> hey, there's an interview he did with Robert and Joe at one of the Erlang conferences. And so I've seen like I've seen pictures of you and you're talking to other people, but nice to actually see you. 
as close to in person as we're getting nowadays for uh, exactly. for this. So with all of my long hair and beard. <laughs> I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Duncan, for taking your time to join me today. Great pleasure talking with you. Look to have you back at some point in the future. And it was just awesome again. Likewise. Sounds wonderful. Let's do it. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.